welcome to this issue of the podcast. We are publishing this for Stories Africa, but also for Voices of Africa. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Alison Reed and Tanya Stevens, both leadership coaches, both affiliated or associated or indeed working at the Gordon Institute of Business Studies, part of the University of Pretoria in Gauteng. This is no ordinary business school. It's been ranked consistently as one of the top 50 globally amongst business schools. And last, oh, this year, in fact, was ranked as the top South African and indeed African business school by the Financial Times in their annual index. Tanya Allison, welcome. Thank you. So we were introduced because I got in touch with you, having read a fascinating article that you both co-authored on complex adaptive leadership. It was an article responding to examples, really, that you'd observed of leadership throughout this COVID-19 crisis and drawing on your profound experience in development leadership coaching. Tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and, and tell us more, please, about complex adaptive leadership. Perhaps we'll start with you, Tanya. Well, Marcus, thank you very much for the opportunity. It certainly is a topic that I'm incredibly passionate about. And if ever there's been a year where the topic has been front of mind for many business leaders and community leaders across the world, it's been 2020. My interest in this really evolved during years of working within organizations and observing how individuals and teams and leadership groups respond to change and the sometimes very reactive nature that we see, uh, the sometimes resistant nature that we see, and then really becoming curious as to how human nature shows up when circumstances around us change. And so the whole topic of complex adaptive systems really takes a lot from natural sciences studies but I think these days there's so much that we can glean from that when we apply it to the field of leading change navigating change uh, within organizations as well and my sort of passion only got enhanced further when I attended a, an international program on consulting and coaching for change at Oxford and HSA and there I was exposed to leaders in the field of change and complexity and what they had to say about the topic and an ongoing learning journey for me. Thank you Tanya. Alison could you tell us a bit more about complex adaptive leadership? What are the key constituent elements of, of this? What, what are the hallmarks of, of great adaptive leaders? Thanks Marcus. So I'm lucky enough to look after a group of coaches and facilitators. It goes without saying that we're just in a very complex, you know, they keep talking about VUCA, but it's very real. It's a, it's a volatile and ambiguous and unpredictable and quite a complex environment that we've moved into. And so all our leaders have moved into that environment. And as Tanya said, this year has been just the most incredible example of every aspect to that. But certainly beforehand, we were already facing a very tumultuous environment. My department's called Personal Applied Learning really because we wanted to get personal. We, we wanted to be able to walk a journey with those leaders and assist them in a personal way to help them with their own capacity and to think for themselves for new ways of being able to help their organizations and their people. And so I look after the coaches. Coaching is one methodology that allows you to do that. And so to get to the point you asked, the question about complex adaptive leadership, I think 
Tanya is an expert in the pure complex adaptive leadership theory. I think it's quite helpful to distinguish between the more commonly held concept of being adaptive as a leader and between a theoretical standpoint that, that does exist that describes more fully what we refer to when we say complex adaptive leadership. And they're linked, of course, but adaptive leadership is perhaps just accessing the ability to adapt when times change. <laughs> it's maybe as simple as that, is, is to use the right leadership style that the circumstances and your people are asking for of you. And I think a, a really obvious example is the crisis of COVID this year. If you step into a crisis, there's a different form of leadership that's required. And we saw from a survey we did with our leaders and coaches People just wanted clarity and communication. They needed to know what was happening, what they needed to do about it. So there's an adaptation there. And then complex adaptive leadership is quite a rigorous body of knowledge that speaks to ongoing way of leading that basically references the fact that leading in today's world is in a VUCA world. It's a complex, the nature of the decisions you need to make are of a complex nature. They're not necessarily technical, they're not necessarily linear, they're not necessarily um, things that are very obvious and can be well planned. And so there's a, a kind of leadership that is required to both get a grip on complexity as an environment and then to adapt oneself and to help one's people to adapt, to make space for them to be able to adapt. And maybe that's a good point to ask Tanya to step in with the theoretical pieces. But did I do justice to the introduction? That's the longest tease I think I've ever experienced. I'm hoping that we're going <laughs> to tell us, Tanya, what are these characteristics? Yes. If you look at adaptive leadership, as defined by Ron Heifetz and Martin Litsky, they really looked at two central areas. The one area is to distinguish the type of problem you're dealing with. So are you dealing with a technical problem? And the way to think of that is somewhere there exists a blueprint for solving that problem. So if we follow steps A, B, C, then the outcome that we should have is D. So if it's a technical problem, you just apply your mind to it, you follow best practice and you resolve the issue. However, when it comes to an adaptive challenge, the answer isn't clear. And you can't do a clear cause and effect outcome scenario yet. It requires people to fundamentally shift. So you have to get an understanding first and foremost. Are you dealing with a technical issue or an adaptive issue? Then you would apply the adaptive leadership framework to actually deal with that. The next area that they distinguish is they make a very firm divide between what they call authority and leadership. So authority is something bestowed upon us, you know, so you get a title or a rank that you hold. And people look towards people in positions of authority for direction, for order, and for protection. And there is a place for authority. However, when you are applying adaptive leadership, the focus shifts to leadership. And leadership is something that stands or can stand independent of title, rank, and role. In other words, um, what they say is any person who cares strongly about a cause or really wants to assist people in dealing with change or wants to initiate change can make use of an adaptive leadership framework. And the way that I would say it is you actually then become the convener 
of the work that needs to be done in order for change to happen. So step number one is really to say, are we dealing with an adaptive challenge? Yes or no? If yes, then what leadership is best suited to deal with an adaptive challenge? And of course, they posit that then it would be adaptive leadership, which looks significantly different to leading from a space of authority. And maybe something to point out is you might not necessarily, in the moment of crisis, select adaptive leadership as your option. Because in immediate crisis, authority can be very useful. So think of an example where, you know, when we had the Twin Towers situation, you want authority. You actually want the fire brigade to go in as quickly as possible and for emergency services to have very specific directives. So in that type of specific crisis, there's a space for authority and not just is there a space, it's actually quite, you know, it's required in that moment. When we look at adaptive leadership, it's rather the bigger unfolding of situations where people need to think differently, behave differently, or review the values uh, or the mindset that they bring to a situation. So adaptive leadership requires a bit more time for the work to happen. Of course, what we also know is if we do not do the adaptive leadership work, then sometimes crises occur because we haven't actually done the hard work in advance. So it's a very interesting space to, to play in, to actually just pause for a moment and say, like, what are we actually dealing with? By, by hard work, Tanya, do you mean coaching and equipping people to deal with what I might call known unknowns? how they lead when there are, there are no obvious answers, testing their own assumptions, testing their biases or being aware of those. Is that what you mean? Yes. Well, the hard work is very often, Marcus, knowing that we are the problem and that self-awareness that's required and then the rigor that we have to apply to changing, exactly as you said, behaviors, entrenched viewpoints. We just have to look at politics as a good example. And if we look at how something that should really benefit from science, such as dealing with a virus, on the surface level, it should be a very simple thing as to how to address it. But we can see that the moment that differing political viewpoints, specific mindsets, people bring in things like their their civil liberties, etc., what then on the surface seems like a very simple thing actually isn't. And that is a classic example of where adaptive leadership could come in to help people do that. But notice you'll be met with resistance and hence the hard work involved in adaptive leadership. So in fact, their one book is they've done an article and a book called Leadership on the Line. Because they say, be careful if you put your hand up for an adaptive leadership sort of convening space because you then have to sit with all the emotions that get kicked up for people in spaces such as that. First, elaborate, please, on who you're referring to when you say they. And then can we talk about that, that emotional piece? All right. So they, it's good that you catch me on that one because it's so easy to put in the they. So maybe the best way is using an example. And I think just being a South African, we've got such a classic example handy. So if you think of the transition in South Africa to a one person, one vote democracy. What was required really, if you go back and you look at Kadesa and everything else that happened and what was required for people to make what happened in our country work, it required leaders that could communicate with people, factions really, with, with different interests, different 
agendas and different things that they were trying to protect or access. So the they would be all the stakeholders that as an adaptive leader, you have to bring to the table in some way and work with in a way that the different stakeholders or factions become part of solving the problem. Because as I said earlier, some of, one of the biggest challenges is knowing that we are the problem. So we being all the people that are involved in it. Mm -hmm. And if we're part of the problem, and in fact, sometimes we are the problem, we need to be part of the solution. Um, so that was the one. You have to remind me what the second, oh, the emotions. The emotions. So where do the emotions come from? So maybe first just to debunk a myth, which I hear often, which is that people resist change. And that in fact is not true. People initiate change all the time. You know, they have babies, they get married, they move, they apply for new jobs, etc. But there is a truth in the sense that people tend to resist change when it implies letting go of something or potentially losing something, or if the nature of the change feels overwhelming and people don't feel equipped to deal with it. And when we face uncertainty, because often it's change because we don't yet know what's on the other side, that kicks up a lot of anxiety in some instances, frustration in other instances, anger, um, fear. So there's a whole host of emotions that come up and we don't live in a society where people comfortably own some of those emotions. So then what we just pick up is sometimes subtle, sometimes overt forms of resistance, which show up. So adaptive leaders really need to know themselves very well so that they can stand in that space of that discomfort but have deep compassion for the discomfort and unease that people experience when you're asking them to do, and I'm going to emphasize the word again, the hard work of really pausing to think about your thinking, feel your feelings and own your story. And Alison is also very well versed in, in that space. I don't know if you maybe want to tap into her perspective a bit more on that. I'd love to, Alison. I was always intrigued, Tanya, when you spoke about the holding space because obviously that's something that happens in coaching all the time you're holding space for somebody else but often you're holding space for a leader who's holding space for for, for their people and when you refer to complex adaptive leadership as being one of having to notice and bring on board multiple perspectives and look at the common good or the common cause and try to piece those pieces together for a positive, constructive change if change is needed. What we find with coaches then in terms of that holding space is that leaders need to build a muscle of adaptive capacity, of being able to be resilient and being able to change, inspiring themselves, keeping themselves okay in terms of their own balance and, and strength and emotional resilience to be able to navigate what's coming on. But they also have to hold that space for everybody else. And it's a lot to hold. I see quite often in crises, um, yes, absolutely, some definite, quick, assertive, directive action is needed to help people feel secure. But sometimes leaders will take the, the knee-jerk response, the, the first thing that occurs to them in order to be assertive and certain. And I would argue that the harder work would be to pause and to connect back into what's going on around you, which means you need to be attuned to multiple perspectives. What are the things you don't know? If you want to support your followers, what support do they need? 
have you asked them? In all of that, you're asking them to be vulnerable and you want to support them, but they need to be challenged too. How are you going to build the capacity in them to be challenged so that they can pivot? It seems to be the word of the, the year, so that they can pivot and do what needs to be done in, in a change. Wow, well, I'm learning a lot from both of you. If I extrapolate just very briefly, a leader must know themselves very well, but have a great deal of empathy for their stakeholders and presumably a strong degree of emotional intelligence in order to be able to discern what it is that their constituencies, their, their stakeholders are preoccupied by it at, at any given moment. Do you think that from all the work that you've both done in, in leadership coaching and, and development, do you think that organizations are equipped to understand and extrapolate their constituencies, their, their stakeholders' needs, expectations, concerns? My own observation has been that it's not as easy as, as one might assume. Even employers who, you know, at the end of the day, they have a contract with everyone that they employ. It's a, it's a contract of employment. But even in relatively small organizations, I observe that leadership struggles really to communicate with its personnel and to receive feedback in a way that's constructive. Yeah, so I'm going to jump in, Marcus, if I may, because I'm quite passionate about this topic. And I think, again, that differentiator that we put in between positions of authority versus real leadership is, a, is such an important one. What I notice often is that people in positions of authority, without really internalizing what it means to lead, really lead people, end up defaulting to tried and tested ways of doing things or sometimes are just themselves are overwhelmed by what is required or the bottom line or what the stakeholders requirements are at a given time that you know there's a there's a sense of i don't want to say survival that comes in there and it's an understandable sense but it is something of you know let's just move forward let's just take action i think that it's time for a new type of leadership and I would love to see, and I think it is emerging in the universities, I certainly know that Gibbs is putting an emphasis on this, in the psychological acumen that leaders need to have, if you really want to lead and work with people, understanding of the deeper drivers, and I'm not just, I think emotional intelligence is in a magnificent place to start, and to step beyond that, even that's required. Can I ask you to talk about the survey on leadership characteristics in South Africa during this COVID-19 crisis. Can, you, can mm. you tell us what your survey revealed? It was fascinating, Marcus. It was really as we went into full lockdown in South Africa um, and as Gibbs was navigating into dealing with the crisis itself. And because we have so many coaches and leadership faculty, people who lecture on leadership, we thought what a wonderful opportunity to, to glean some wisdoms and insights from abroad group of people about what they thought was useful about navigating a crisis, what was useful in leadership. So what we didn't manage to do at that point in time was, was survey the leaders themselves, but it was a, a good way of being able to quickly get insights from those who deal with leaders. And the aggregate findings were really interesting. I was listening to, to Tanya and just thinking how much of the verbatim feedback from the survey related to the, the theoretical points that she's raised. And we just saw it coming out time and time again. There was a phrase in one of the respondents I loved. She said, you need to be a communitarian. And I thought, how beautiful, because what mm. she's saying, communicate, communicate, communicate. Clearly, 
clarity, transparency, but do it with a humanitarian sense. So do it connected to, to what people are needing to hear from you. So some of the themes we really saw was the communication one came out so strongly time and time again. The other one that came out strongly was empathy. So the ability to be attuned and to be empathic. And empathy in the sense that you are humble and vulnerable to ask, to say, I don't know what you need. What is it that you need? I'm reflecting on the story, Ryan Bacher um, of NetFlorists. I'm sure you know, one of, he was one of the most successful pivots in COVID, managed to redeploy what NetFlorist does in terms of non-essential stuff, the gifts and, and flowers, and move to delivering groceries to, to people who needed it. He spoke a lot about these kinds of principles, the, the communicate, communicate, to be empathic, he landed up in a situation where he had to go and bail out one of his drivers at a police station because they'd been arrested in lockdown one. And just being able to be there himself as CEO, bail out his individual, find out what had happened to cause him to be there. It's, it's a different level of empathy and, and tuning in. I think it's about being vulnerable and being able to admit you don't know because the people around you also want to know that you don't always know, that you clear about the direction you feel somebody that we should go in, but that you don't always know the how. We saw a lot about the balance between certainty and direction and being clear and giving a sense of direction versus admitting that you don't know, being able to be open, take a pause, absorb what might need to come next, say I don't know, and then move forward from there, empathize, be socially intelligent, etc. Fascinating. I'm reminded of a, an article that one of my colleagues posted to the Africa Practice website last week, looking at political leadership across the continent. There was a phrase she used in it, or a subheading, I think it was something along the lines of big men, small horizons, and toxic masculinity. I think that if I'm honest and I look across leadership on the political level on the African continent, those characteristics of humility and accepting that one doesn't know are very far removed from the sort of stereotype and caricature that, that most of our leaders reflect. Moreover, I wonder just how many citizens would be ready to see their leaders acknowledge that they don't know. Is this something that the pair of you, you think about? Definitely. And I would say it's about having very good judgment about what you disclose not knowing. So I do think that we look up to people that are able to offer us some sense of expertise in specific areas. And that's why I think it's very important to narrow down where you use adaptive leadership. So it's not a blanket, be vulnerable. It's not a blanket, say you don't know. It is clearly stating around specific example. Here we need to come together so that we as a collective figure out the best way for us going forward. So I think where that could be a wonderful space to have a conversation is for someone who is really keen to assist their organization to step into the new world of work in a way that empowers and allows the workforce to thrive, to actually use an adaptive leadership framework to say, now that the world as we know it has been disrupted and we have seen that there are different options, how can we come together in a space where we can have meaningful conversations around what a good way would be 
to solve for our future in terms of, is it a work from home? Is it 80-20 split? Are there other alternatives? And you can see how in a grouping, there will be people with different voices, different needs, different things that matter. Some might love working from home. Some might not be fortunate enough to have suitable situation in their home to really operate that way. So that's such a perfect way to use adaptive leadership to solve for a, a future where everyone really feels that their voice has been heard. It doesn't mean that everyone will be totally um, satisfied, but everyone will be part in the solving of the challenge of what do we do going forward. And I think that's the lens that I want to emphasize, if I may, is that adaptive leadership is a we thing, not a me thing. And it would be a trap to step in to think that adaptive leadership is something that I do to others. Adaptive leadership is a framework that gets applied to create a place where people can identify the adaptive challenge, can have meaningful and deep discussions. And there's a phrase that they use, which is give the work back to the people. And you see, that takes us away from the I have all the answers. And communication, you know, as much as it is about crafting a good message, the other part of communication is the ability to listen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sometimes the vulnerability that's being asked is the vulnerability not to step into our habitual way of engaging, but to mm -hmm. say, instead of speaking, can I listen? Instead mm -hmm. of having answers, can I come to a place with really good questions? Mm -hmm. And those are skills that can be built. And that's why I think it's very empowering that anyone can, can apply this framework if they prepare to learn the skills that are linked to it. The second aspect, if I might, Marcus, that, that I was thinking about as Tanya was talking, I agree that one can't necessarily, if I took it to the opposite extreme, sit in a space of, I don't know, I'm completely clueless, I'm falling apart, because whether you know or don't know, you're going to create the kind of effect for your followers that you really do not intend creating. But I also think in addition to what Tanya said, there, there is a certainty and a strength that comes from adopting a different role. So for example, one's knowing and certainty could come from standing firm on the notion that everybody has different insight and knowledge to offer to a complex situation and that the, the more broadly open you are to harvesting those collective wisdoms, might lead to a better action in that situation, but one as a leader could adopt the role of facilitating those multiple perspectives, of eliciting where people are sitting, of combining what that means in terms of a multiple reality. Drawing a picture, for example, about you know standing on the balcony instead of the, the dance floor, <laughs> so holding the broadest possible context and then eliciting a variety of perspectives to fit into that. So you can see if one adopted the kinds of roles that I'm, I'm talking about, it's, it's quite, you need quite a lot of assertiveness and commitment and certainty. You're adopting it in your role of getting people to think together with the viewpoint that the more minds are working, the, the better the overall solution could possibly be. But you're working quite hard to piece the, the pieces together to as Tanya said, using skills of listening and deep curiosity to elicit those multiple perspectives, possibly from people who are reluctant to speak or who have been ignored for so long that their voice is quiet. 
I think personally that that is a very tough role to take and that one needs a great deal of certainty and assertiveness and confidence and presence to be able to do that. But what you're doing is something different. You are not necessarily saying in that environment, I have the singular answer and I'm going to give you that singular answer and you, you're going to act on it. You're saying there is an answer. We need to create it together. I'm going to help you to create it and being confident in that space. And so the collective piece that Tanya spoke about, I, I couldn't agree with more. I think the role of a, a leader, though, is to facilitate those collective insights and definitely to step in where their own expertise and their, and their knowledge and their wisdom themselves is something that's useful. So there's that balancing act that's so much more difficult in today's environment. Facilitating the gathering of collective insights in itself is a very tall order, a hard task. If you're a national leader, how do you go about getting the views of a, of a country at a time of crisis? I'm minded to think that technology has in greatly facilitated the ability of, of leadership to gauge opinion and, and understand sensibilities and views. Obviously, different forms of democracy enable opinion to be cascaded up through representative members of the legislature and, and so on and so forth. But it's, it's pretty tough to manage complex stakeholder ecosystems in a way that is seen to be fair, without prejudice, without bias and delivers a, a productive outcome that genuinely supports a positive direction out of a crisis if, if we think about this year and, and COVID-19 in particular. I'm also minded to think that we obviously every country has experienced this pandemic to smaller or large degrees and we've seen different examples of, of leadership styles achieve a, a higher or less degree of success. There's been a lot of reflection on the fact that the populist leaders, those well-known populist leaders who don't need naming here, but have by and large abjectly failed in protecting their civilian populations or their populations. The more considered and consultative leaders have done by and large better. There's still a long way to run on this pandemic. Would you agree with that, that observation? And indeed, is it helpful to your own theory and what you preach in terms of adaptive leadership? So perhaps what I would say is a leadership always takes place in a context. And it's interesting for me that people say, how has someone led in a crisis without linking that to how do they lead in general? Because the leadership and the values we espouse in our day to day going about our business we will see the consequences of that in the moment of crisis. And in countries where the I and me perspective has been driven home so hard, it's very difficult to then shift people into an I-we space, which is what is required when you want to deal with a virus that doesn't discriminate. And so you might be now actually, not you, uh, Marcus, per se, but we, we might be looking towards leaders just in terms of how they're handling COVID. I would say we should take two, three steps back and rather say, what is the climate and the culture that is established in that country? And how does that serve the community uh, for when and if the next crisis strikes? COVID isn't a thing that created the chaos, but it's showing us where all the cracks are. It's really surfacing the cracks. And so maybe what we're dealing with to some extent is actually consequences of good leadership that hasn't come before in as much as we are dealing with leadership that's not necessarily in place as is. Now, having said that, are there some things that leaders could really 
get behind and drive and I don't want to say enforce because that would be the wrong mm. word, but support, support communities in terms of doing what would be most helpful, definitely. And there a strong, clear message, really supporting what you're saying by science, being an example, holding yourself to the same standard you hold to others, understanding the discomfort that some laws or regulations might evoke for people, understanding the impact of that on business. That's a, a wonderful space where one can certainly display wonderful leadership qualities in a time like this. I don't know what Alison would say or add to that. I was just thinking about the leadership in context and how many African countries, including our own, had leaders who were, let's say, successful in a certain sense as veteran fighters, let's say, um, and accomplish something that perhaps was needed at the time and then take that same leadership style into an environment that no longer needs that particular form of activism. And then what starts to happen in those governments and in those countries and if I link that back to then complex adaptive leadership, it's not necessarily that you can adapt to one change, for example, a crisis, but that you understand the need to adapt to context all the time. Mm. And I wonder to myself, I mean, I don't have answers. I'm, I'm not a political analyst um, and I don't have the answers, but I do often wonder if we had leaders who had built the muscle of attuning not just to the people they led, but to the circumstance and what was needed. And that, that actually requires a wisdom in terms of where that country needs to go in the future. What's the, the building blocks they need to put in place? And then was able to shift according to, to what was needed. I mean, I wonder, I'm, I'm so passionate about Africa, and I just wonder if, if we would do better generally in, in adjusting if we had that muscle built. One of the pieces of advice that comes out of complex adaptive leadership is the notion of, of an agile and trusted network. And I think that's just such a wonderful concept to come back to in terms of collective leadership. If, if, you, if the strength you need to have is to elicit wisdoms from multiple people, that relies on having built some good relationships beforehand so that they're trustworthy. And you have, in a sense, a, a committee of advisors that you can believe and trust in to offer you different perspectives and indeed to challenge you. Uh, again, I don't know the behind-the-scenes detail of Cyril Ramaphosa's response to COVID here, but I can tell you what I felt when he spoke. It felt as though, in terms of the language he was using, that he had people around him that he trusted to give him pieces of advice in, in different, with different perspectives. I felt safe. That's the perception part of, of leadership. I felt that he had taken into account the science, taken into account some advice, whether he, it always played out the way he said it would or not, I felt held. Um, and there's something to be said for the, the feeling that I got that he was consulting yeah. and, and advice that he might not necessarily, he wasn't a biologist, he isn't a biologist, but that he was consulting as opposed to some other presidents which shall not be named that very clearly in their communication were saying they had a grip on it themselves, <laughs> were complete experts in the space and knew what to do. Yes. Well, I can think more recently in Nigeria, the, the NSARS movement and the, the government's response there, which was long in coming and was received rather poorly by a population who felt that it was very out of tune with public sentiment and, and public emotion. But yeah, doubtless there are others. Just finally, I wanted to talk about the psychological impact of this year's events. 
and how you've seen leaders, organizations respond to what's been a very, very heavy emotional toll on people. And, and to give us some examples, if you will, of best practice. I've dealt now with a variety of different organizations and I've been asked to address large groups. Sometimes we've got 600 people on a, a call, etc., around the topics of resilience, adaptive capacity, etc. And in each of those sessions, I actually did a, you know, quite a bit of research. We made use of technology to get people to vote online. So we really got in the moment feedback from what people were experiencing. And it was interesting to see that the emotions and, and things that people were dealing with really came in waves. So in the beginning, there was a lot of fear and anxiety that surfaced for people linked to high levels of uncertainty. So those were really quite predominant emotions that surfaced. Then as things dragged on a bit and people really started understanding that they were now in it and had to deal with things, what started surfacing as a very strong emotion was a sense of overwhelm. So we started really getting feedback from people that juggling multiple roles, trying to manage, you know, keeping the household going, having many people in the home at certain times, working online all the time, different expectations surfacing. So the performance expectations were still there. And yet people were trying to regulate and manage their emotions, an extreme sense of overwhelm really surfaced. In fact, that was in sort of like in the middle phase, the top word. And then there was a sense of boredom, interestingly enough as well, because the things that people usually used to do to alleviate pressure or to just have fun and excitement in the world, it started feeling very monotonous. So you would, it wasn't something that I was expecting from the outset, but the strong sense of someone said the blahs, you know, like it's just like blah, life doesn't feel very exciting, surfaced. Now we're noticing once again that the anxiety is spiking. And I think that has a lot to do with the economic realities that are now coming home. And I know that they are starting an actual COVID stress measurement scale now to actually see how specifically that has, has impacted people. And then, of course, the year has been compounded by that we're very aware of the effect of climate change. So if we look at the Australian fires at the beginning of the year, compounded with Black Lives Matter and what we've seen play out in the US and other places. So it's not just been this. And then the other strong feeling was feelings of isolation and loneliness. That also manifested for people and then questions around meaning and purpose and what is this all for. So I would say like the gamut of emotions have been playing out for people. What has been encouraging to see is where organizations have taken an active and proactive stance and have equipped people with things like resilience workshops, emotional regulation workshops, mindfulness techniques, getting together communities, helping people to have conversations around where do we need to put boundaries in place uh, to just support people with those feelings of overwhelm. There we've seen real tangible success, but definitely, and I'm not even touching on the fact that many people lost loved ones and the grief and the sorrow that comes with that. So it's been a roller coaster is the word I hear the most of. Really good insights there. Well, it's been a pleasure to listen to you both. Thank you for spending as much time as you have. So just for the audience's benefit, that was Alison Reed, Director of Personal and Applied Learning at Gibbs, and Tanya, who's a professional associate at Gibbs, where she works as a coach, lecturer, and facilitator. It's been a delight to learn from you both today. Thank you for sharing your insights on complex adaptive leadership and some very uh, practical examples of, of how leaders have put that into play during uh, this year, 2020, which, as you rightly point out, Alison, is unprecedented, certainly in, in recent times, in terms of 
the disruption and volatility and the ambiguity that it's presented for leaders. Thank you to you both. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Marcus.